Well, I am really excited to be here with you this week. And typically, youth camp starts you know, several months before we arrive at this moment with, uh, I believe the Lord giving me a, a sense of a burden, just as I'm you know, involved in many of your lives and, and knowing you and knowing the uh, realities of the culture that we're in and just a, a sense of uh, what would God's voice for right now from his word help us. And so he led me to Second Peter chapter 1 and just uh, you know, the more that I've visited with this passage and just find this to be continually true. I'm just really excited that you're going to get to spend a lot of time in it this week because it is so rich and it, it, it takes more than one reading and more than one uh, study and meditation really to be uh, affected by everything that is in this passage. But grateful for a lot of the time we get to have here. Well, one of the pictures that kind of came to mind, how many of you have seen the film National Treasure? All right, so you all should know what I'm talking about. If you need a reference point, uh, Luke, he just went in the bathroom. He's wearing a Nicolas Cage shirt with a mug shot that says National Treasure underneath uh, Cage's uh, prison picture. But uh, apart from whatever his uh, criminal record may be, living illustration right there. There you go, Luke. Everybody look at him. All right, now you can go ahead and do your business, man. Uh, we'll all be thinking about what you're doing in that bathroom now. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know the concept, right? They're, they're searching for this renowned treasure that uh, you know, he, he wants to actually steal the Declaration of Independence because he believes, he's convinced, and this has been kind of a family generational uh, idea, is that there is this treasure that the founding fathers had gathered and collected and preserved, and on the back of uh, the Declaration is an invisible map that's going to lead you to the treasure. So they go through... Uh, all sorts of events, and I don't remember too many of them because it's been forever since I've seen that film. But there, there's, there's one moment that, you know, spoiler alert, they, they do find the treasure at the end. Um, but when they, when they come into that room, I don't know if you, if you remember this scene, uh, they enter into it, and, you know, they immediately come upon all these really interesting artifacts. I mean, you, you get the sense, just the stuff that's right there in the room, you know, maybe it's not on your Christmas wish list, but you realize that, that stuff's got to be worth something. Like, there are smart people in the world that want to get their hands on that, and I could probably sell that off for a couple million dollars each, right? Uh, so you know, wow, there, there, there's significance to, to this treasure. But then uh, one of the characters, he, he, you know, he takes his, his torch, and he lights this little kerosene lamp, and then if you remember, the, the fire just kind of shoots down the middle, and then it just keeps lighting everything up and lighting everything up in the room. And, and the, you, you realize, no, this is just kind of the top level, and it just goes downward and expands out, and you just see gold and, and kind of historical artifacts and all these things all over the place. And the, and the room and the treasure is, is much larger than you initially thought. You realize, okay, that was great, but there was, there was more to experience as well. And I, I think... You know, Second Peter one is gonna is gonna lead us to that encounter, as well. Uh, but you guys know this, right? There there are certain times, certain maybe transition points in your life, where you kind of come to realize, hey, I thought I had found something really good, but there's more. Right? How many of you guys like the exact same things and have the exact same interests that you had when you were four years old, Molly? That would be true of you, which is why you're such a unique person, right? Uh, you know, I've got a, I've got a four-year-old daughter. She's uh, well, she would be quick to correct me that she's four and a half. Um, she's interested in some things that I think you know maybe they're beyond her years. I don't know. I'm just her, her parent, so I'm really biased. Uh, but the time's going to come where that that gets expanded, and 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 maybe some things are going to get left behind. You know, she she has certain. She's got a little bit of an OCD personality. I don't know where she gets that from. Um, but uh, she has certain rituals that she always wants to go through. And I I'm noticing some of those are changing. You know, it's like you, you always had to have that doll in that place. And when you, when you pray, you have to say these things in this order. Uh, and, you know, I don't try to adjust too much of her theology of prayer at this point. She does still pray for everything that God has made except for seagulls because she doesn't like when they poop on her heads. Um, that still makes the list. But there's going to get more that, uh, you know, added to her, her knowledge, her interests. Uh, your, you know, your just taste of food and your, your palate 
changes over time and expands. I mean, maybe some of you are still stuck on the uh, chicken nuggets and ketchup diet, but at some point you realize that there, there's more flavor out there. There's more kinds of food. Um, you know, there, there are layers of flavors. You, you know, when, when I travel up north and you order something and, and you kind of have these big expectations for how it's going to taste, and, and, you know, I don't know, just, just I'm, I'm a New Orleans jerk or something, but uh, I feel like, okay, that was interesting, the first couple of bites, and then after that, eating just becomes laborious. It just kind of becomes boring because, I, I, you know, down south, we know how to kind of layer the flavors, and, and there's adventure to it, and there's something else to discover beyond that, and, and that kind of, that taste complements this one, right? So you, 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 you get expanded into other things in life. Friendship interests change, right? Interest in relationships get added on. You don't think the same way about the opposite sex right now that you probably did when you were, when you were younger. Uh, I, I just, you know, when Rebecca and I were dating, it was, it was an adventure of... Uh, her taking me out of my kind of boredom and what had become comfortable for me and introducing me to new places in the city to go to, new things to, to be interested in. And, and, and life, that's a good thing about life, is it's not static. It's always expanding. There's always, you know, new and more. And we like that thought. And, and, and in some ways, we're really addicted to more. We operate on devices that... You know, you, you used to have a web page, and you would have to go on the internet. Uh, you used to have to dial up and, and fight with, you know, your sibling who's trying to use the phone while, you know, some weird static, cringy sound is coming over. And that's how you actually went on to the internet. Uh, now it just comes to us. And it just is, it's endless streaming. There's always more. It just keeps swiping up and, 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 and it always expands. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're kind of driven to want more of things in certain categories. But do you guys realize and do you feel this that there is more spiritual growth? more of a relationship with God, more of fellowship and encounter with him and a sense of his nearness and of his thoughts leading you and directing your life than you have yet to experience. There's more. And that's fine, right? That, that, is, that is not a problem. It only becomes a problem if we if we think that we arrived, or worse, we know we haven't arrived and we're okay with staying where we are. And that is, that is a concern that we have uh, for this week. But do you want maturity in your walk with Christ? We, we often want maturity. We, you know, this, this stage, this kind of in-between years of life in particular, where you, where you have more privileges and more responsibilities, and there's still limitations and parameters that are put in place. And you're always kind of bumping up against some of those boundaries and some of those limitations and arguing your case with your parents as to why you know you should be allowed to do this and, and dictate this and be in control of this. We, we, we want more maturity in a lot of dimensions of life. Is maturity in Christ a priority for you right now? Because that doesn't just start when you reach a certain age. Listen, listen there, there, is, there is no minimum age required in order to be in this passage. If you trust in Jesus, if you really believe, yeah, no, he's, he's forgiven me of my sin, you're, you're in this text. And so I want us to read it together and receive much that it has for us. Here's here just some, some context of what this particular audience was facing, why Peter writes this to them. Uh, they were experiencing some persecution. Right? In chapter 3, he tells them, hey, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you. In the first letter he wrote, a lot of it had to do with, uh, you're going you're gonna to suffer. Don't be surprised by that. People are going to not like you, and you're going to have to manage that and deal with you know, 
holding on to Christ in the midst of that. And, and so in, in chapter 3, he talks about these scoffers that come up and make fun of what you believe, so that that's something that they're facing in their own midst. There are these false teachers. So there, there are contrary ideas and value systems that have entered in and are competing for their beliefs and for their trust. And so he's having to correct some of what they've heard and come across. People have been led astray by that. Some people have walked away from the faith. They've decided whatever this Christianity thing holds out for me, it doesn't really do it for me. It's not enough because the version that they had encountered was limited and thin and it didn't satisfy them. And so they wandered off. They're dealing with the fact that Jesus hasn't come back yet and he's, he's promised to return. And, and listen, waiting is a hard thing. To have to wait for something that you, you, you don't see right now, okay, is it, is it coming? Uh, we, we don't do patience really well. And they're, and they're in the first century and we have been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to return. You realize the Bible speaks to that? It doesn't, it doesn't get caught off guard by that. It trains us to expect that, and it tells us, press on, endure. He's faithful. Don't, don't you realize he's doing more in this than you could ever think of? And so it speaks to that experience. And then Peter himself, right? He is in prison. He is awaiting his martyrdom. He, he's about to lose his head in Rome, and he's come to realize that. And so he wants to leave the people that he loves with some important words. Let's find out what they are, okay? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Oh Lord, we want to be able to recall these things. We want to be reminded of them. And first Lord, we want to just recognize them. So help us to see and help us to enjoy your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are gonna, we're going to focus in on verses 5 through 7. 
uh, in this passage here. That, that's where our sessions are going to come from. So tonight we're going to talk about virtue. He's saying add certain things to your faith virtue. Uh, tomorrow night will be knowledge. And then the third session we'll talk about self-control. Uh, and then the final session will be steadfastness. Now we will also do godliness in the morning devotions. There, there will be a Godward direction that we're, we're focusing in that time and for the whole camp. And then for the breakout sessions, uh, for the guys and the girls, we call them here, uh, Meninar and Feminar, uh, from Seminar, uh, that will focus on uh, brotherly love and, and sisterly love. So that, that's what we're going to be studying this week. Uh, but I wanted to begin tonight by, by just helping us to see that there is more. There is more. There is something really big that God has done, that he declares to be true, that he has said, this is available to you. It's on the table. It's there for the taking. It's a fact. It's in the room. And, and, and I want us to kind of set the torch to the kerosene and let the room light up and see everything that God has done and why sometimes we don't really engage this, okay? So, so first, what God has done, the size of God's call and enabling, just look, look at this. God initiates the relationship that we're in with him. He does that to us. Look at, look at verse one. To those who have received a faith of equal standing with ours. In the Bible, faith is something that we do, we believe, but it doesn't just originate in us. It's not the people that were really smart and really put together or decided one day, okay, I guess I'll acquiesce and follow Jesus. That's not where faith comes from, according to this verse. It, it comes from outside of us. It comes from God, and we receive it. He gives it as a gift. And so if you believe in Jesus, God determined that you would trust in him. And, and look at what he's given you, a faith that's with equal standing with ours, with Peter. And I'm guessing the rest of the apostles is what he has in mind there. You, you realize Peter and Paul and James and John, they did not live a different version of Christianity than you have. It, it's not like they had some upgraded super version and, and, and we've got this kind of basic entry level and, and maybe for the people that God really loves, he, he lets them in on a little bit of what they had. Everything that they had right, in, in their standing before God, in God's work in their lives, in the Holy Spirit, that is ours as well. It is there for the taking. Right? And, then, and then he says this in verse 3 that this is all through the knowledge of him who called us. Right? There, there is a divine call on our lives. If we know God, it, it's because God has spoken to us. And so, again, this, this isn't just the fact that we happen to grow up in a Christian family or decide to participate in a youth program or go to church or show up for this week. Do, do you hear in all of those things, God himself has called you. And he has said, you're mine. I will have you. And you will follow me. The God of glory has called you out to be his own. And then he empowers growth in our lives. Look at verse 3 again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's just his way of saying it. not only everything that you need for life, but everything that you need for a godly life, God's given it to you. All the resources, all the enablement, they're yours. And then verse 4, he says that you may become partakers of the divine nature. That, that sounds a little weird, right? Uh, we don't always talk like that. And he doesn't mean that we become God in this. But, but the nature of who God is, what God is like, his character, that, that, that gets reproduced in us because we, we in, a, in a mysterious way, we participate in it. We are united to everything that who God is through what Jesus has done and, and then that becomes ours, and then in our own lives, we live that out. 
We, we have reproduced in us what God is like. And then he ensures our future. Look, look at verse 4. It talks about his precious and very great promises. He's promised certain things that he's faithful to do in our lives. And listen, I, I cling to those promises for my life and yours. I would not do this week. I would not do youth camp. I would not do ministry. If I, if I wasn't convinced that there are people in this passage, there are people for whom this is true, that God has issued promises of you're gonna be mine and you're gonna make it all the way to the end and I will preserve you. I will guard you. He talks about in verse four that, that we have escaped from the corruption of the world. Now, I know, and here's the disconnect, is our lives don't, don't always look like that. It, it looks like we're just comfortable and fine in the context of the world. But what he's saying is, in terms of what God has done, he's, he's severed something that over time, it, 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 it's like when you, you, know, you, you cut off a, a branch from a tree and it's still green, it's still you know, able to look like it's alive. Over time, that's going to shrivel up and die. There, there's something about the world that has been detached from us and you still see the leaves over there, but there's, there's coming a day and it's sure because it's been cut off. It's done. We have escaped from its attachment and the day will come when it will no longer operate, have any influence on us. And then we, we have this destination of, of a future that is perfect and bright and glorious. In verse 11, he talks about how he's richly provided for his entrance into an eternal kingdom, right? There, there, there is a, a kingdom that extends into the next 10 billion years and beyond, and, and we're citizens of that kingdom already. Already, that's where we belong. Now, all of that is in, the, in this passage. And what's striking to me is that that is not everything that is in this passage. He doesn't just in there put the period on the sentence and say, all right, glad you were encouraged. Glad you could remember that God's done a lot of kind things for you. Now, you go off and live your own life. Uh, and do whatever you want to do, right? Uh, you know, he, he calls for us to do certain things. There's what God has done, and there's what we must do in order for this to exist inside of us the way that God has intended, right? For this reason, he, he calls us to, to supplement our faith, to add certain things to our faith. The, the, the word there, you could also translate that, like furnish your faith. I know the, the buntings are coming up on a, on a move pretty soon. Uh, and, and those of you who know uh, Jordan Bellamy, Jordan Casey, they just moved. Uh, you know, they, they, they are traitors to the South Shore and have joined the elite uh, North Shore Club. Uh, but uh, right now, but this is the case for them and this was the case for Rebecca and me when we bought our, our first house. It's like you're used, to, you're used to living in a certain size and a certain amount of space that it belongs to somebody else anyway, so you don't do a whole lot with it. And then now, you own your own house, and you kind of bring the furniture that you have, and you, and you put it in there, and you realize, wow, there's a lot of empty walls and a lot more room here, and we've we got to do something with this. There's, there's a house there, there's a structure in place, but there are furnishings to add. And the temptation is to try to add all that right when you move in, but you have to do that a little bit over time, and otherwise you'll starve because you've spent all your food money. Um, but, but Peter's calling us to do this. He's saying, you've got a house there. You've got faith. Furnish it out. He doesn't want just to live some sort of like bare bones, prison cell type of existence. There's stuff to put in place that God's already purchased for you. He's bought it. It's there, it, it, you know, it's at Target, it's at Rooms to Go, wherever it is, your name, and you just got to go pick it up and, and bring it into your house because that's how God wants you to live. Don't leave it empty. And, and, and just feel the tone of this, this whole text. This is a passage that's all about more. It's just pushing you onward. It's saying, go further. Don't stay where you're at add things to you, right? Verse 2, we, we read this earlier, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are 
increasing. And then verse 10, he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. All right, so how does that happen if we are to grow? Well, it happens by what he says in verse 5. Make every effort. If you want it, make every effort. And it can be yours. And the, the language there, it, it, he uses this phrase, it's literally apply zeal to these things, right? Take passion that God's put, put in you. Take diligence and enthusiasm that you can do, but apply it to this. Now, the reality is this is not, you know, your generation, Generation Z, I don't, you know, you got that label stuck on you now, um, the final generation. Um, you're not a stranger to diligence. And I see this playing out in your lives, right? You're able to work hard a lot, and you do. There are certain things that you'll wake up early to do. You'll dedicate time. You will spend the last bit of your energy that you have, and then you will spend even more. It will get your attention you, you will shape your social life around that, right? You, you'll, you'll tell your friends, no, you got to wait because I've got this going on. But, but it tends to be in the, in the categories that interest us and highlight our strengths, right? Things like sports activity, um, music, maybe that's the case for you. Dancing could be the case. Uh, you, uh, growing in uh, maybe even academics, right? The, I have... <laughs> I've never heard so many people take the ACT so many times. Uh, and I don't want to, you know, pick on that at all because I think that's great. But do you realize that's a little different about you? Uh, you take the ACT more and more frequently than, you know, people five, six, ten years did. The amount of AP courses that high school students pursue today. Your, your appetite for kind of college experience and, and you know, what, what you're able to achieve. Now, I, I'm just picking on a different categories, not because any of those are wrong things. In fact, all of those are good things, and I love that you guys run after all of those things, because I think they reflect how God has made you. He's made you in his image. It becomes a problem when things like diligence and passion only exist in those areas. And it, it is foreign to you to apply that same kind of effort when it comes to your walk with God. In fact, we, we get trained by the surrounding culture uh, to, to expect that a walk with God's not really going to require that kind of effort. It's going to be automatic. It's something that we're just kind of wait, waiting for God to do in us. And sometimes we use that language, oh, I just, you know, wish, just hoping God does something to me, this youth camp, you know. Just God, does, God really needs to do something in my life right now. Well, he does. And listen, he has. And look, here's the recipe for Christian growth. It is God's ability and our responsibility. It is God's power and our Effort. Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Because apparently, living in the good of 2 Peter 1 does not happen automatically. Otherwise, he would not have written this letter. Listen, where are you getting your expectations for what Christianity should feel like? For what it should look like? For what you should experience when you sit down with your Bible and you seek to read it and interact with it meaningfully and receive something from it for, for prayer, obedience, turning away from sin and turning toward what pleases God. How, how does that happen? And what frames your expectations for what that's going to take from you? Because listen, the, the surrounding world and even the surrounding Christian world, it, 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 it teaches us over time that these things, you know, I, 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 put, in, I put in five minutes, I just didn't feel, just didn't feel much from it. And you know, sometimes I read the Bible, 
And sure, I, I read it in between checking social media and kind of glancing at it with a little bit of attention that I have. And I haven't really no, I haven't read any other books that are there to help me understand the Bible. Uh, yeah, I've read a lot about you know music, and I've read a lot about uh, you know watched a lot of YouTube videos on how to perfect my skills in other categories. But I've never done that when it comes to understanding God's Word. That's not really something you should have to do, right? We, we, we come with expectations that have nothing to do with this and, and really with all church history and what it teaches us. There's this um, episode in, in uh, the book of Second Kings that stood out to me that I, th- I thought of when uh, just thinking through areas of, of more and, and diligence. And uh, it, it's, it's when the prophet Elisha comes to the king Joash and he, he tells them about, you know, your enemy Syria is, is there. God, God's going to lead you. He's going to grant you to have a measure of success. And so he hands them an arrow. And he tells them, strike the ground. And Joash takes it. And, and he strikes the ground three times. And then it says, Elisha got angry at him. And he said, you pathetic dude. Oh, that's my translation of that, right? Why did you only do that three times? You, you should have struck the ground five or six or seven times. Then God would have surely annihilated Syria. But instead, you did it three times and then stopped? Why'd you conclude that that would be enough? And look, I know, I know that. I'm just speaking from my experience and my own concerns. I can feel it, that there are moments when the, the level of engagement that I gave to God, it fell just short. And he was there and he was available. And he was ready to do something new and insightful in my life. But I thought, surely that was enough. I came to camp, you know. I was there. I, didn't, I don't know if I really got a whole lot out of it. But I was there, you know. I listened, kind of, Right? Uh, God is calling us to more when it comes to diligence and effort. G.K. Chesterton says, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And that's the concern, is that we, we won't ever really try on what God has for us. So, question for us to consider that is here in this passage... Are we settling for less when God has more for us? And he brings a warning about settling. Look at verse 8 here. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently, you can know Jesus. You can know something of him, and in some way you really can know him and that not have an effect on you. That not be right now making something in you that is fruitful and noticeable and changing you. That's possible. It's possible to fall short of what God has for us in this. In the verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You really were cleansed. But that, that's not near to your memory right now. That's not what you see. That's not, and then we're going to study this tomorrow night, that's not the knowledge that right now you are living out, out of. There are other priorities, other facts, that are your deeper convictions right now that are shaping how you're reacting and what you're doing. And it's like you're nearsighted. It's like you're almost blind because, you know, it, it's one thing to have eyes that, that can see. Uh, th- maybe they can see like, you know, four or five inches in front of your face. And then beyond that, everything else is blurry. So you, you've got, on one level, you have eyes that are operating, but, but they are, they're not doing anything good for you. Right? They're, they're, they're not being effective. For all intents and purposes, you're, you're blind. And he's saying sometimes the only thing that you give attention to is, is just the immediate things that they, they inform today's concerns. They don't have anything to do with what extends all the way into eternity. It's just right in front of us and it's like we have become 
blind. Listen, we, we don't experience more because we're often just too pleased with what the culture around us and maybe even our Christian friends have trained us to expect as normal. Uh, there's a guy named Jim Collins who wrote a book for the business world called Good to Great. And he, he talks about how often good is the enemy of great. And so the reason why you don't have good companies or uh, rather great companies or great schools or, or great governmental systems is because often you just have good companies and good schools and, and good systems and, and that sort of thing. And uh, the example that came to mind for me, you know, we stopped at Chick-fil-A on the way up here for lunch, and uh, on Thursday night, we're going to be eating Subway. Subway, you know, they give me the impression that that's a good company. I'm, I'm fine with eating at Subway. I think it'll be, you know, it relatively will be a good experience. It's not going to be a great one, right? Uh, Eric is, is showing, hey, hey, look, you've got, you've got a Subway cup and a Chick-fil-A cup on your table, man. You are ready for this illustration right here. <laughs> uh, Chick-fil-A, that's greatness right there, amen? It's like they, 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 go, they go beyond. They, they, they don't want to just settle for, a, you know what? I bet people might exchange some money and walk away relatively happy. They want to leave an impression with you. They're not okay with just being good. You know, the, the founder of Chick-fil-A said, you know, one, one, one time there was a situation where he was in a, a board meeting with, with uh, the other board members, and they were talking about how they need to open more stores, how they need to grow the size of their company and have more influence, and, 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 he, and he, you know, he just kind of interrupted them all, and he, and he said, I'm tired of you people talking about how we need to be bigger and bigger and bigger and all of that. What we need to do is we need to produce something that is so excellent that our people will demand that we grow. And, and that's what has happened to them. But, but, but listen, often the problem with not experiencing more of God it's not that we just jump into the world and em embrace everything that it has for us. I mean, that, that is a problem. But that we're okay with just being good Christians. As, not, as long as I'm not sinning too much in you know, these extremely obnoxious and noticeable areas of life, then I'm okay. I'm a good Christian. And there's nothing that's spurring us on for more because we've settled for less. Look at this thought here from Paul David Tripp. He says, as I noted earlier, I'm persuaded that the problem with the body of Christ is not that we are dissatisfied with what we do have, but that we are all too satisfied with what we do have. All right, did I read that wrong? Let me read it again just in case I did. We're, we're, it's not that we're dissatisfied with what we do not have, but that we're all too satisfied with what we do have. We are comfortable with a little bit of holiness a little bit of ministry, a little bit of sacrifice, a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of the satisfying glory that only the grace of Christ is able to give us. I am deeply persuaded that we must resist with all our might the kind of self-satisfied spirituality that marks the life of so many believers. Right? We, we, we do this because at the end of the day, even as Christians, often what we are living for and what is driving and animating our lives, it is so much smaller than the big call that God has given to us. Right? Paul Tripp gives this illustration, I think is really good. Uh, I hate dealing with uh, shrink wrap or cling wrap. Uh, it's, it's really ingenious. I mean, I don't, I don't know the physics behind the, you know, the, the molecular properties that allow shrink wrap to do this. But it, it, what it loves to do, it just loves to shrink down to whatever it is that you're wrapping around, which, which is a problem if, you know, you're trying to wrap it around your fingers on your way to, to uh, sealing off something else that just kind of clings to itself and becomes totally wasted. And I think it's part of the design to make sure the company, you know, they're selling more product because you have to waste so much of it along the way. Um, but, but we can live a shrink wrap lifestyle. It's like... God's kingdom and his work in my life and my engagement with it, it just shrinks down to the size of my life right now. 
and, and to the little things that I care about. Look at what he says here. He says, in a fallen world, there is a powerful pressure to constrict your life to the shape and size of your life. There is a compelling tendency to forget who you are and what you were made for. There is a tendency to be short-sighted, myopic, and easily distracted. There is a tendency to settle for less when you have been created for more. There's something expansive, glorious, and eternal that is meant to give direction to everything you do. And when you lose sight of it, you've effectively denied your own humanity. And according to 2 Peter 1, we've denied the work of Christ in our lives. But listen, we can be Christians, but we don't have Christ and his purposes at the center. We're, we're still living for our little concerns. We're still craving people's approval. We've still borrowed our basic definition of success and a good life and a fun time from the culture that surrounds us. We're just living a tamer version of what everybody else is, is about. They're just about the likes. They're just about the attention. They're just about you know, being noticed in, in the little platforms that you have. And maybe you don't go off the rails in those areas and you don't you know, use the, the, some of the methods that they do, but you just kind of have a, a tamer version of the same goals for your life. We, we, we can fret about and fight for such small things. And maybe you're, you're playing some video game and you're caught up in that. And uh, your mom comes and, and she wants you to do some chore or she's, you know, getting on you about the fact that you haven't done homework yet or, hey, can you pause that? Can you stop that and come help me with this? And, and, and suddenly you, you've picked a fight in response. Like, mom, you do not understand. This is not the kind of thing that pauses. It just does not work like that, right? Everything is going to be ruined that I've built up for right now. And so, no, I, I'm sorry. I know I'm supposed to obey you. I'm supposed to. I know that in my head somewhere. But right now... What I'm living for is this game, and man, I'm achieving something right here. They, they, uh, there's going to be a Wikipedia page that's getting written about what I've just scored here, right? Uh, all of a sudden, that became the driving force of your life. Something small and tiny led you to ignore how God had called you to live in that moment, right? We, we know this at camp. You, you might lose an aspect of your witness or an aspect of your influence for Christ over some little fight, over some stupid game that Amber's probably going to forget to add your score anyway. And so it's not going to make much of a, of, of a difference, but you're laying it all on the field, man, right? And, and, and so you are getting an attitude and you're fighting with people about that. Why? Because all of a sudden something so tiny became everything in that moment, a certain relationship with a person. Everything can orbit around that. Maybe it's somebody of the opposite sex. Maybe, maybe it's somebody that your parents aren't sure that they approve of or don't want you to be involved with that, that level. And, and you go to manipulation mode. Right? This, this becomes an issue of contention. You are, you are shaping all of your... Uh, mental life and, and how you're approaching the settings that you go to and, and they are all orbiting around this one person and they have become your world, right? Why do we get caught up in these things? Why do we shape everything around what people think of us when God has already accepted us? Why do we worry so much about our physical appearance when we have been made for real glory? Why are we fascinated by celebrities? When the Bible says one day, you and I are going to own the world. I don't care how much real estate they have. I don't care about their net worth. I don't care about how many followers they have on Twitter. The world, the earth belongs to us. It's the people of God. Do you know that? And you have to be introduced to that, which means you have to read the Bible to find that out. And then that has to become real to you. But so often something else is 
at the center. Well, God does not want us to settle. And in 2 Peter 1, he's not going to let us. Right? He has intentions for our lives that are larger than our individual lives. And this requires taking up what he's put on the table, what he's made available to us. And so uh, for the rest of our time, which I know is limited uh, tonight, what Peter calls us to add to our faith is virtue. So just take the closing moments here to look at this quality here, right? Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. How many of you can think of a time somewhat recently when you have used or you have heard somebody else use the word virtue? Justin, I always knew you were a special man right there. Uh, this is, look, this, this is not a word that people use today. And it's not just because it kind of sounds antiquated. It's because it is a concept that people do not use today. It is, it is just not in how we see the world, how we see life. It, it has become culturally foreign. Right? Virtue, according to dictionary.com, is moral excellence. It's goodness. It is conformity of one's life and conduct to moral and ethical principles. Till Lemoyne reminded me uh, when, when he, we were talking about this, about the, the, the cardinal virtues, which... Uh, were, were certain things that, you know, throughout kind of the history of, of the world and people thinking about this, they were saying, hey, if you, you want to know a virtuous person, here are the things that they have in their life. They have things like wisdom. They're not easily fooled. They know what the right thing to do is in a variety of complicated situations, which sometimes we get into situations and, and the factors that are involved, they're, they're different and the people that are involved are a little different and it's like our whole moral system goes out the window. Well, I was with that friend instead of this one, so therefore what God has to say all of a sudden became distant and weird to me, right? We, we, we don't know how to apply these principles to the real life situations, that God has put us in. Do you realize often the right thing to do is, is not clear? God wants us to grow in wisdom. Purity is one of the cardinal virtues. Right? Finding Christ and his standards for our lives and, and, and our thought life and how we're to relate to other people. Right? When it comes to things like sensuality, the, the, the sexual images and, and, and what gets promoted in the culture around us and, and what kind of standards we hold ourselves to in the midst of that. That's one of the cardinal virtues, honesty. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the truth even when it hurts. And, and listen, Christian young people today are people that have become comfortable with small lies exaggerations, times when it's like, yeah, if it were a really big thing, then I would, I'd tell my parents the truth about that, but I'm just going to serve up my own alternative version of reality to them, and I'm fine with that. Do you realize there are things in God that in this passage you miss out on, that you trade in? God wanted you to see that. God wanted you to know him in, in a unique way, but you settled for your little lie instead. Courage. In the face of hostility, you can look at Philippians 4 later where he talks about those things. Right, 100 years ago, people would use the word virtue for young men who would die for their country, for people who would sacrifice and lay things on the line, people who would not give in to the pressures of the world around them. They, they answered to a sense of more. And that's where virtue comes from. Let me just raise this thought for you and maybe you can apply it as, as God leads you. Do you care about things that are more than just your little concerns and what immediately affects you? Right? There, are, there, are there certain things that you think about that you are willing to give the time of day to that don't do anything for you right away? There's just a host of issues, social issues, racism, human trafficking, abortion. Does that ever enter your prayer life? Is that ever something that is on your mind? 
people needs. What about the seven-year-olds in the church? The senior citizens? Care about what's going on in their life? Or have you become, like that fancy word Paul Tripp used earlier, myopic? Everything is just narrowed down. I'm nearsighted. I, I, I don't know. All I can see is right now, five minutes in front of me. What, what is this doing for me? What about... You know, your younger siblings, do they matter to you? Uh, are they just a problem that are in your world? We, we learn to tune out these things. And, and listen, our devices, this is why we're kind of doing a semi-fast from them this week, they don't help us because you, you, you follow and unfollow what you care about, right? The, 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 you're able to approach the digital world specializing in your own interests, yeah, I'm going to kind of be friends with you, but I'm not going to follow you so that on some level you think I care about you, but everything that you have to say, I don't want to hear any of it, right? So you unfollow those things that don't really matter uh, to you, and then, and then you have your own little timeline that you've built up that, you know, where you are at the center. Uh, Trevin Wax calls this the myth of the smartphone. He says, the primary myth the smartphone tells you every day is that you are the center of the universe if your phone is your world, and if the settings and apps are tailored to you and your interests, then with you at all times is a world that revolves around you. No wonder we like to be on our phones so much. Nothing else has the same effect of putting us at the center of things. Nothing else makes us feel more in control, more godlike more knowledgeable, more connected. Why is it that you can be at some family gathering or even some church event and you open up your device and you're like, I'm kind of tired of having to deal with all the conversations that I've got no interest in. Look, that person's my cousin, but I, I could care less, right? I, right now, it's, it's what I've decided is at the center of me that I want to give my attention to. And you realize that shapes you. The more you establish that as a pattern, it affects you, and virtue goes out the window because it implies that your life answers to a higher calling, that you're living for more. Someone else is calling the shots, and that, that's how Peter begins verse 1. He calls himself Peter, a servant, and maybe your Bible has a little footnote that says, or a slave. They don't use that word there often in translations because they don't want to give the wrong idea. But the word he uses there is the word for the slaves of the day. He's saying, Peter, slave of Jesus. He's the master. I'm not my own. I don't own my life. I don't call the shots. He owns me because he's bought me. He's bought me off of the slave block. He's redeemed me and now I'm his and my life answers to him, everything that I do, everything that I think, everything that happens in public or in secret is with reference to my Lord. And either you're gonna be driven by that or, or you're, you're gonna be driven by what you think looks like you're in charge. But it's really just another form of slavery. But, but it's in us, it's in us from an early age Right, this law of self where we, we, you know, we, we learn from an early age to try to get our siblings and our parents to cooperate with us. And what do I need to do? What kind of noise do I need to make? How do I push their buttons in order to bend them to my will? And that just develops in us over time, right? Uh, it's why we respond with annoyance or complaining or self-pity. And, you know, you got different personalities. Some of you get all aggressive and you blow up. Some of you turn really inward and you kind of just go off on your own. Why are you doing that? So I just really want to be by myself and want nobody to see me. You know, you want everybody to notice that you just walked away offended because you want to bend them to your will. They crossed a line when it comes to your law. And, and you're going to do what it takes to make sure they knew that they did that. And they're going to come in line with me. And, and, and this gets culturally enforced. We, we shrink all of reality to fit us. C.S. Lewis makes the point in one of his books that people used to try to discover reality and conform ourselves to it. Now we start with what we think that we deserve 
and we try to conform everybody else to our wishes. But virtue, it has to do with living for something that is outside of us. But listen, the, the, the new moral code is what do I think that I need? What do I really want? What do I feel like fulfills me? And everybody has to get in line with that. And, and it would be ridiculous, and not just ridiculous, it would actually be morally wrong to deny myself that. Right, if you, you pay attention to the sports world the past several years, I just think about the different reactions to uh, somebody like Tim Tebow and Jason Collins. Right? Tebow gets ridiculed. He says, you know, in, in how he relates with his girlfriend, there, there are certain things that he's not going to do. I'm not going to repeat some, <clears throat> some of the sports-related jokes that were made about Tebow because of that. But again, you know, years ago, that would have been the sign of virtue. But now he is, he's made fun of. He's seen as weird. In fact, there's something like it's implied that, man, what you're doing is wrong. Who's going to do that? And then Jason Collins, he was the... Uh, you know, the first uh, major sports player to, to come out as, as gay and is seen as courageous. Uh, he gets a call from the president and the first lady, and, 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 you know, it's like, because you have made all of life answer to your inner desires and impulses, you're doing the right thing, man. You're to be applauded. That's courage. Right, we, we've taken virtue and we've flipped it on its head because we've made ourselves the center that everything answers to. Charles Taylor says, for many people today, to set aside their own path in order to conform to some external authority just doesn't seem comprehensible as a form of spiritual life. The injunction is, in the words of a speaker at a New Age festival, only accept what rings true to your own inner Self, right? And, and listen, that's not entirely new. The false teachers in Second Peter were doing the exact same thing, right? They said, I don't know what you think about that Jesus guy, but he ain't coming back. There's no judgment that you're ever going to have to face, right? There's no law outside of you that you are going to have to answer to. And so what that led to is they, you know, just doing whatever they wanted, uh, in their lifestyles and how they approach sexuality and all these things. That, that was part of the teaching of, of this day. But, but what fixes this? Is it just knowing, I guess I'm supposed to do the right thing? I don't think that fixes this. It should, but it doesn't. And it's in that Charles Taylor quote here, right here. It says, for many people, to set aside their own path in order to conform to something else, it just doesn't seem comprehensible. In other words, they, they, can't, they can't imagine it. And, and listen, we are driven by our imaginations. And I hope you see that, that you know, Disney films and songs at the top charts, they, they influence you a lot. And they are selling this message big time. And what they appeal to is your imagination. And, you know, my goodness, Frozen's got a great soundtrack, soundtrack and every song is about this, right? But it gets in you. You're awakened to the sense of wonder and possibility. If only I followed my dreams and the sky's the limit, right? Which means we need our imaginations awakened to what really is true. Eric, if you want to come back up, man. Right, we live in a world that's after our imagination, but this is what Peter says is true of us. We have been called to his own glory, this is verse three. Knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. And the word he uses for excellence is the same word he uses for virtue. And so... There is Jesus. There's something in him. There's, there's glory in him. There, there is beauty and moral perfection in him that we are to see, that we are to notice, that is to affect us, that's to produce this inside of us. Thomas Schreiner says, when Christ calls people to himself, they perceive the beauty and loveliness of his moral character 
His character becomes exceedingly attractive to them and they trust God for their salvation. Right? The excellence of Jesus pulls away our attention from the small little trinkets that we are sold in this world and it becomes compelling. He's lovely and beautiful, so we want to be like him. We want to serve the master. We want our lives to answer to his higher calling that pulls us in. You know, a lot of classic love poetry, people would talk about being bound by their lovers, right? By being held captive by them. And they would even talk sometimes like they were a, they were a slave to them. Not unwillingly, but because that is the person I want more than anything else. And so I, I cannot go anywhere else because this person is the love of my life and his or her beauty is everything that I need do you think of Jesus in that way do you find Jesus to be stunning right certainly the fact that he's God what he's come to do, his work in saving us. But have you ever paid attention to this quality in Jesus? Virtue. He was a man of wisdom. People will always, they were always coming at him with some sort of game, some way that they were trying to trap him in his words and he saw through everything that they were saying. He was not easily duped. He had discernment. He always knew the right question to ask, the right thing to say, the right thing to do. I find that to be absolutely amazing because I'm in situations all the time where I wonder, should I have said that? Did that help? Was that wise? And I, and I read the Gospels and I see Jesus and I ask him, God, make me like you. Help me, because you are so utterly unique. His purity. Right, Jesus is someone who encountered every temptation that we have, and he never caved in. He could meet with a woman at a well and be alone with her and have only on his mind what is going to minister to her and be for her redemptive benefit. He can have somebody come and wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. And the glory of God is on his mind in that moment and nothing else. Do you realize how amazing that is? In a world that we live in, that pushes us all the time to answer to our impulses in these moments. He never caved in. He was absolutely pure in every thought that ever entered his mind. That is strange and wonderful. His honesty, his integrity, persistent truthfulness, his, his courage. Speaking with people that could end him and eventually did because he was convinced of something that is true in God. God's not going to abandon me to death. I know resurrection is coming. Listen, Jesus is glorious. And to be a believer, according to this, means you've seen that. You've seen it on some level. And yet other things can cloud your view. Other things compete for your vision and for the desires of your heart. Listen, I, I want to see Christ and his loveliness. And I want to have that compel me to more to have all of my life 
answer with integrity to what he has called me to, to allow him to be the center of my world and my interests and my existence and not all the little small distractions that in a moment can take over. And I've shrunk down God's work to something tiny and worthless. I don't want that to happen to me. And I don't think God wants it to happen to you. There's more for us that he has in store. Listen, if you don't see Jesus in this way, you're not going to have any motivation to run toward more. Christianity will be some nice ideas. It'll be some interesting rules that you're not really sure how you feel about some of them. And the time's going to come when other information is going to be more present and more real and more compelling to you because your engagement was thin and you were nearsighted when it came to Christ. Let's stand together. Eric's going to lead us in worship and just want to allow us to make it our appeal for more of Christ and for more of his virtue in our lives. And I want to encourage us to experience more in how we are leaning in and eager to receive from and respond to God through song. Let's allow him to minister this in our hearts and not come back up and close us out. Murdered for me on 